For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we are on our third week in Romans 12, this, this section you know, of this densely packed book with this densely packed chapter. You know, the book of Romans has been all about how God loves us, how God uh, moved toward us while we were still in rebellion, while we were shaking our fists at him. God moved toward us. He died for us on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ so that he could take the punishment that we deserve for the moral evil that we are responsible for, and we could be reconciled to him in love. And chapters 1 through 11 have been all about that. And at the end of the book here, after spending so much time explaining the justice of God, the mercy of God, the sovereignty of God, and the love of God, he's now turning to this subject, starting in chapter 12, about the effect that God's love should have on us. That as we come to understand God's love, that it can have an incredible impact on the way we live our lives, the way we treat one another, the priorities that we have in this life. And so for the first two, last two weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 12 talking about things like this second decision, this idea that we can give our whole lives to God, that we can decide to live for God. Not only can we be saved uh, through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, but we can choose to walk with God and let the love of, of God impact our lives in such a way where we begin to love others and see others through new eyes. And then last week we talked about how this love can be manifest not just individually by the choices we make as one man or one woman, but to, that when we come together as the community of God's people, dedicated and devoted to expressing the love of God, we find that we become something greater than the sum of our parts, that we begin to move together and we can manifest the love of God working together as the church in a way that is supernatural. That our love for one another and the way we treat one another is one of the best ways to manifest the incredible truth of who God is. And so as Paul is working through that, he lands there on this, on this point that is so important is that we understand what he means. What does God mean when he says love? What does authentic love look like? And he starts here in chapter 12, verse 9, and he says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. This word hypocrisy uh, is, uh, is being translated here from enopakritos. And it means sincere. It means without false appearances. He wants real love, substantive, meaningful, sacrificial, difficult love. Love that changes people's lives. Love that is real. John Stott in his commentaries on Romans wrote, the, hypo the Hippocrates was the play actor. That's the root of that Greek word, is the actor in the theater. 
But the church must not turn itself into a stage, for love is not theater. It belongs to the real world. What he's saying is, is let's not pretend. Let's not play at love. Let's make that what we are truly about. Not shows, not spectacles, not false fronts, but let's make love the center of who we are because it is the center of who God is. And we are to be his representation, his ambassadors in a dark world that doesn't know him. Authentic love, that is what is supposed to be the heart of God's people. And the world thirsts for it. Everyone you know out in the world desires love. It's amazing to me. I've had the opportunity. I've been very blessed. I've been able to travel all over the world. I've been able to spend time in Asia, in China, and in Cambodia, and Israel. I've been able to go all over the world and meet all kinds of people. And you know what unites us? You know what we all want is love. Real love. We want good things for our children And we want to know that we matter and we want relationships that matter. And we have different languages and cultures and we eat different things and we dress different ways. We listen to different music, but we all want love. And in our culture, we live in this culture where people are fed up with false promises. You know, we live in this consumer culture where people are promised if you wear these shoes, you will be significant. If you drive this car, people will think you're impressive. That you can find comfort and joy and peace and safety if you just buy our products. And so many of us, myself included, we've sought significance, we've sought meaning and purpose, and we've gone out and we've we've tried what the world has had to offer, and we've found that it left us more empty, more broken, and more alone than when we started. That's how many of us were finally broken in our pride to where we could come before the Lord and bend a knee and say, I can't do this on my own, I have sought Meaning I have sought significance, I have sought purpose in my life, and all I have found is the hunger for more. And we have found something in the God of the Bible, something that has truly begun to fill us. It's being used by him to love other people in an authentic way. The church is supposed to be the real thing. It's supposed to be the thing that people are wandering around in a desert, thirsting for love, and they finally find the community of true believers of Christ, and all of a sudden, it's like finding an oasis where people really love each other. They really sacrifice. They really spend time together. They really talk about things. They really share where they struggle, they really help each other, they're really moved by each other's plights. People of God are supposed to be that genuine oasis. And as a whole, the church is failing. Why? Because we're hypocrites. Because we have tried to emulate love 
We haven't made it the center of who we are. We've made the center of who we are being separate, being different. The church in America defines itself by what it's not. We've developed a different culture and different music and different tastes. And we stand up and we say that we're about love, but we really are about self. And we have lost our light. We have lost our lampstand. Because if we go out into the world, if we go out and interview people on the street and say, what do you think of when you think of a follower of Jesus Christ? What's the number one word you're likely to hear? Hypocrite. Self-righteous. Judgmental. Narrow-minded. That's what they think. And that's not God's fault. It's ours. It's our responsibility as a community, as ambassadors, to reflect the love of God. And religious fakery kills our ability. It trumps everything else that we might do. Whatever good we might do, if it smells of hypocrisy and fakery, it's dismissed. Because it's the very thing that we are supposed to be about. And so Paul gets in here and he starts right at the heart of this issue. Let your love be without hypocrisy, he says, and abhor what is evil. And he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the difference between real biblical love and faking it. Let your love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. How can we love God and be indifferent to evil? If you have God's perspective on what matters, if you have God's perspective on the world and what's happening in the world right now, and you see the pain and the suffering, the greed and the selfishness, the murder, the rape, the starvation, you look at the injustice of the world around us, and if you can look at that and be indifferent to it, where is your love? Where is the love of God? Where is the heart of God that lets you see the world through his eyes, that these beings, these humans are his children that he's created for a vast and noble and eternal purpose? And they've taken all these wonderful gifts that he's given us and they've used them for self to tear one another down and we scramble over one another in an effort to accumulate more for ourselves at the cost of others. James said in James 4.4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. (laughs) What does that mean? What does it mean to abhor what is evil? How can we be an enemy to the world and love God? How can I be God's ambassador of love and hate the world? That's a pretty important question, isn't it? Imagine you were sent to be the ambassador to Afghanistan, and you just really hate Afghanistan. That would affect your ability, I would think. 
to be a good ambassador? Why does God tell us the world is evil and that we should abhor evil and that the world is our enemy and then tell us to be ambassadors to the world? Well, part of the key is understanding what the Bible means when it says the world. That term in the Greek is cosmos, and it doesn't refer to people. It refers to a system. The world system is the culture. You can think of it as the world culture. It's the practices and standards associated with secular society. It's the way that things are set up. It's the way that we tend to go by default without thinking about it. If you just go with the flow and you live like everyone else lives, you are likely to be living consistently with the world system. And the Bible argues that there is a mind, an enemy of God, who has constructed that system to get us to worship ourselves. That that is actually a plan of the enemies of God is to do whatever it takes to get us not to think about God and not to think about and understand the love of God so that we could be used by him to make a difference, but that instead we would become so infatuated with our own desires that we would become meaningless and impotent to do anything about the injustice and hurt in this world. 1 John 2, 16 and 17 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The biblical perspective is, is that this world system is all designed to get us to believe that perishing things are the most important things. That we love food, but food doesn't last. We love money, but we can't take money with us. We love youth, but youth is fleeting. That we want and desire all these things that aren't even real in the face of eternity. They're momentary, they're here, and then they're gone, and they're gone forever. But there are things there are things that are real, things that last forever and eternity, and they're in these seats right here. And they're in your neighborhoods, and they're in your workplaces. They're people that we last. And so the only thing that matters, the only true treasure, the only thing that you can invest in that makes any difference is relationships with God and with others. That's the only thing. And all of this appetite, all of this desire, all of this greed, all of these things where we look for meaning and look for purpose, they're just rotting away. And they'll never last. And the plan of God's enemy is to get us so focused on the, on the false things that we trade away what really matters. And we get nothing in return. That's the goal of this world system that God says we should be enemies of the world system. We should be enemies of a broken system designed to cheat God's children from their eternal inheritance. We should hate the world system because it deceives people about what matters most in life. 
It condones and encourages selfishness and greed, and it leaves people more broken and more alone. The ultimate goal is to leave them destitute, broken, angry, cynical, bitter, and alone with nothing to show for their lives. That's the enemy that we can hate. It's the system that's designed to get people to live for the wrong things. Don't fall in love, he says. If your love is to be real, then you must abhor what's destroying God's children. Don't fall in love with the world's system. Some of you know what this is. Some of you don't. This movie is kind of old now. But it's such an interesting picture. It's um, The Matrix. And in The Matrix, there's this fake world. Everybody's actually like a battery that's plugged into a computer, right? And the machines have run the world, and everybody's asleep, and they're in this virtual reality world, and it's using human beings to create electricity to power the machines, right? And so everybody thinks everything's normal, but then they start to find out this is all an illusion and it's not real. And they start a rebellion because they realize that they're, they're being used and that their lives really amount to nothing. And this guy, Cypher, is one of the ones who wakes up and sees the real world and he decides the fake world is better. And so he betrays his own race and makes a deal with the machines if they will just plug him back in and make him a battery one more time. And in this scene, he's at a fake restaurant eating a fake steak, and he's saying, I know it's not real, but it tastes so good. His appetites rule what he values, and he values an illusion over the truth. This is what it's like for a follower of Christ to be a friend to the world system that's destroying and enslaving the children of God. We should hate the bankrupt world system, but love the people stuck in the system. The system is the enemy. The people that comprise the system are the mission. Jesus said we are to seek and to save that which is lost. And as all these people are plugged into this illusory world system, being told that, you know, if they just make more money and get more power and do more drugs and have more sex and allow themselves to be more comfortable and more entertained, that if they just do that, then everything will be okay. The system that is convincing them of that is killing them. And those are the very people that we are sent to love. And it is only love, only real, authentic love that can break through the power of that illusion. No wonder the enemies of God spend so much time getting us focused on things other than love. The love of God being compassionate toward those who are deceived. There is no human being who is our enemy. Our enemy are the enemies of God, the spiritual forces of darkness that are trying to deceive the world. And there are human beings that are absolutely convinced 
that God is dead, that he never exists, or that he's evil. But they are not our enemies. They are our mission. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. We're not to take up arms and, and gather weapons and have bunkers. Who would we fight? The people we're supposed to love? No, we don't wage war like the world wages war. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is a battle of ideas. Why? Because the body is temporary. The body is fleeting. Your soul, who you are, the spiritual component of yourself is your true self that will live on to eternity and no one can touch that with any weapon of mass destruction. Only an idea can touch your soul and change it and move it. Only love. And so our mission, our battle, is one of ideas to show and to prove that God is love and that these ideas of God being grumpy and mean and judgmental and that the followers of God are hypocrites and inauthentic, those are the very ideas that we are here to fight. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The war for love and for the hearts and minds of the human race are fought in your head because it's a war of ideas, and it's a matter of what you choose to believe and what you choose to reject. Why is Christianity such a turnoff in our culture? Because most people think it's fake. Because they haven't been exposed to biblical love and biblical community. They've been exposed to a castrated version, a broken, ugly reflection of the glory that God has intended. And this has been part of the program from the very beginning. We go back to Romans 2, and we see that this was one of the great concerns in Paul's day as well. He says in, in chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among non-believers because of you. Who are the people that are at the forefront of our culture's understanding of the leadership of the church? Who are the people that we see in the media? The world loves to take broken, fallen human beings, broken, fallen church leaders, and parade them in front of the culture to reinforce this idea that the love of God is a farce. And we have far too many examples of Christian leaders adding to that example. 
1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19 says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. It's not about not sinning. That would be a mistake. You say, well, I'm going to stop sinning, and then God will be glorified. Uh, We're going to sin. We are fallen, broken human beings. But it's about our attitude toward that sin. That's where hypocrisy and authenticity fight their battle. Is what is your what are your thoughts about your sin? It's not hypocritical for a Christian to sin. A lot of people like to say that, but it's not. I became a Christian because I realized I am a messed up sinner who needs to be forgiven. And I continue to prove that every day. Every time I sin, I prove why I need Jesus Christ in my life. It's not hypocritical. What would be hypocritical, what's most hypocritical as Christians is to refuse to forgive. That's hypocritical because we've been forgiven everything. And then we're going to turn around and judge someone else? How does that work? But our attitude towards sin is what he's talking about. When he says we must abhor what is evil, it's our attitude towards our sin. And it doesn't mean never sinning, but it means admitting our faults, being genuine. When we struggle, admit that we struggle. When we fall, admit that we fall. Let people know that we're in the fight, that we're striving with God in hope of real change, that we look at our sin as as something that we are grateful that Jesus died to forgive us for those things, and we are also eager to have more of God's glory and God's power and God's truth in our lives to where he could demonstrate his goodness by the change manifest in our relationship with God. That we would be on a continual path toward healing and refinement and growth. A bumpy, gross path filled with mistakes, but the determination to keep moving forward. What he's saying when he says abhor evil, he's saying don't make peace with your sin. Don't become complacent about the things that God is trying to talk to you about in your life. There's really three ways that we do this. One is some choose self-righteous denial of sin. They just reject the idea that they are sinful. I don't have a problem. The problem is you, not me. The problem is the way that you act. I wouldn't be the way that I am. I wouldn't do the things I would do if it weren't for the circumstances that I am in. And I don't have... Uh, these kinds of problems. Maybe I used to be sinful in these ways, but uh, I don't see it anymore. I refuse to accept that I have rebellion in my heart. Another is to minimize and rationalize, right? We say, well, you know, kids, if you would just obey, I wouldn't get so mad and yell at you. If you weren't so hard, to love, you would find that I'm a much nicer person than you think. (laughs) 
If my spouse would meet my sexual needs, I wouldn't struggle with that pornography. If I made more money, I wouldn't be stealing from my boss. Or you think I'm bad. I mean, I've got my problems, but I'm no murderer. I'm no rapist. I think that uh, compared to most people, I'm relatively good. And frankly, uh, I think you should acknowledge that. Just imagine how much worse I could be if I wanted to. (laughs) Or there's license. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Thank God Jesus died on the cross. And every time I sin, I just know that Jesus died. I've got my fire insurance. And I don't, you know, it'd be nice if I could change, but I cannot change. I will never change. So I'm just going to keep right on making friends with the world system. That's where hypocrisy comes from. These are the ways that we minimize, deny, and create license. These are the things, these are the reasons Jesus Christ died on the cross. And we are so quick to make peace with our sins. We don't like to live in tension with the areas of our life where God is calling on us for change. And Paul is saying, if we want to be about love, we have to be real. We have to be authentic. And we have to fight the good fight under grace. Know that we're forgiven. Know that we're loved. This isn't about being guilty or feeling ashamed. Nothing changes when we feel guilty and we feel ashamed. But when we desire love and we experience love and we see how our selfishness and greed interfere with our ability to share love and it erodes our authenticity and our ability to be ambassadors for Christ, that should make us want to change. And God is all too eager to move in and bring about change. He goes on and he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. That word devoted is philostorgos. It's the term that's used for being filled with affection. I wish our church had a little more of this. This philostorgos. This is the way that the mutual affection between children and parents. You know, hugging laughing, putting your arms around one another, expressing joy. We're a little, we're a little stuffy, Xenos. We're all very cerebral and truth and space. Just a little more, a little more huggy would be good for us. That's supposed to be how families are, right? Engaged with one another, affectionate toward one another. Being devoted to one another, philostorgos and brotherly love. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit and serving the Lord. Diligence is this idea of being zealously engaged. Diligence is about being all out. Being willing to work hard. Love, authentic love, is hard work. It's going to take a concerted effort on our part to make time for each other, to engage with one another. 
It's hard because it's a risk. You're going to risk rejection. You're going to have to limit the things that you have time for. Your ability to engage with other people in a real way is going to take effort. You cannot lie on the couch and wait for opportunities to love others. You have to get up and get out into the world and make things happen. And that is what we are supposed to do as children of God. We are supposed to be initiating love and light into the darkness. He says, do it and be fervent in spirit. That word is the same word used in Greek for water boiling over. Let the Spirit of God boil over in your life and wash its way into the lives of those who are around you as you serve the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, that the authentic love that we're supposed to have does it with a view of God's promised future. That hope that we do live, we are eternal beings, and that we are promised eternity with God, and that there will be a time for joy, a time for comfort, a time where evil will pass away, and we can spend our lives without a sin nature and without the pain and suffering of this world, but that time is still in our future. Now is the time for sacrifice. Now is the time where we can change the face of eternity by our love for one another and our love for God. And we will not be able to persevere if we lose sight of the eternal promises of God, of the glory of our eternity and future. Persevering in tribulation. You might say, well, I'll love and I'll sacrifice as long as nothing bad happens to me, as long as God protect me and protect my children and, and make sure that I don't get cancer and nobody gets hit by a car. I will love then. And God says, no, this isn't about blessing. It's one of the big mistakes that we make. We say, well, God, will you bless me and will you continue to give me a good life, a comfortable life? Will you protect me from pain? Will you protect me from, from fear? Will you protect me from rejection? And God doesn't promise any of those things. He promises he will give us joy, and he will give us meaning, and he will give us purpose, and he, we will come to the end of a life, live for God, and look back over that life and see God's greatness, and we will rejoice. But why we live our, this life, the reason we live this life is not because of God's promised blessing in this life, but it's because it's true. There really is a God. He really made us. We really have an eternal component. He really is just. He really is good. And there really is a world of people out there suffering in ignorance of his greatness. And he really does want to use us to go and shed that love and that light into the world. And that will come at a cost. That will come and cause us to have to sacrifice our comfort. But we do it because it's true. He says, do it devoted to prayer. That word, proskotero, is about continually 
regularly, constantly praying. Go out into the world to love others and bring the Lord with you. Let there be a, a constant connection. I'm walking to my neighbor's house, Lord. I don't know what I'm going to say. Am I a crazy person? Why am I doing this? Ding dong. Hi. I'm your neighbor. Would you like to come over for dinner? Jesus, help me. You know? That's what he's talking about, you know? That constant connection where you are inviting God in and you are connected and communicating to God and with God as you move into the lives. As somebody wrongs you, how do you forgive them? You pray, God, help me to get beyond my feelings and my broken sense of justice and help me to love them with your love and help me to forgive them as you've forgiven me because I do not have the strength to do this on my own. Dependence and connectedness with prayer as a way of life contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, that the generosity that we have and the way that we treat one another, what we're willing to share with one another, what we're willing to give to one another, those are the things where we can make a difference in this world, where people can look at you and look at the relationships you have with people in this room, with people in your home church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and they can see how much of your time your money, your food, your house, your life, you're willing to give to others and they will look at you and they will say, this makes no sense to me why you do these things that you do. But the joy that you have and the love that you have is something that I desperately want. Have people over. Let them break your stuff. Get new carpet every few years. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Eat meals together. Go on vacation together. I've been surprised as I've gotten to know people how many people don't even take vacations. They do staycations, you know. And they're like, well, I can't afford it. You know, get a tent and a sleeping bag and some peanut butter and jelly and go camping with your children and invite some neighbors along. Get out and do relational things. Connect with each other. I love when our home groups and our, our ministry, we take trips together because you get a week together crammed into a house full of chaos. And it's real and it's gritty and it creates opportunities for forgiveness. I'm starting to feel like maybe my sales pitch is going downhill. <laughs> You'll find that you can do more and, and have, develop more closeness in your community in a week than you can in an entire year of just going through the regular motions. It's like going on a retreat, you know? You go on a weekend retreat with your home church, and everybody's like, wow, this is what it's going to be like in heaven. This is so cool. Then you go home and it's like, man, why can't, it, why, why can't it be like that? But you can see a surge of unity moving as you spend time investing in one another. Choose relational activities with each other over passive entertainment. Don't just sit in front of a screen together, but laugh. Challenge each other. 
make fun of one another, tease one another, and enjoy what it is that community is supposed to be about so that when trouble comes, you can weep together, so that when triumph comes, you can rejoice with one another, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. That is authentic love. Some of you, you have things going on in your life right now, in this room, in this moment, that you are weeping over and we don't even know. We don't even know what to be praying for you because you are suffering alone in silence. And some of you have triumphs. You have things that, you, they, that are lifting your heart and lifting your spirits and we don't know about those things and we can't rejoice with you because you're not letting people into your life. You're not living real life together. And that is authentic love. Share your lives with one another. That's what he's saying. Connect. You know, you look at this example, and it's easy to say, well, no wonder so many people fake it. That looks hard. How, how, who has the energy to do all of that? right? It sounds exhausting. Having people over and talking about real things and choosing relational things and going on trips together and peanut butter sandwiches and tents. I'm going to lose sleep over that. It's very tiresome to think about the amount of energy it takes to have real relationships. Doing so much with people. How, when am I going to get energized? What about me time? How am I going to, if I do all of that, what about my shows? What about, you know, kicking back and putting your feet up on the couch and just relaxing? And, and I got hobbies. I have projects. I have things that I want to do. But see, the thing that we have to understand is the thing that we were really made for is love. And just like Cypher, we can go and we can eat that fake steak. And we can say, oh, it's so delicious. This show is so good. I laughed. I cried. And I, I binge watched on Netflix an entire weekend worth of shows. And I am thoroughly entertained. But are you happy? Are you full? Did that fake steak Nourish your spirit. You see, we believe that we need those things in order to recharge our batteries, but we were built to have our batteries charged by giving love. That's what gives you joy. That's what energizes you. You think that sounds like effort. It is effort. It's effort that produces energy. Because you were made to be a giver, a lover of God and your fellow man. And when you invest yourselves in those things, you realize it in the moment. You know what I'm talking about. Most of you have experienced this. You felt the power of God moving through you to love someone else. And you felt so lifted up and so energized by that. And then you got out of the habit and you got back onto the couch. And now it sounds exhausting. But I need you to remember. 
I need you to remember what you know is true, that it is exciting to be used by God in someone else's life. And I know that when we are grappling with the world and flesh, it all sounds so cumbersome. But that's a lie. That's a lie that we tell ourselves and we trade away something real, something eternal, and something meaningful for something that cannot last. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. In the community of God and the body of Christ, no one is supposed to be left out. It's one of the great opportunities that we have to show how different we are from the world. And you might be sitting there thinking, I mean, I like some people in my home group, but some of them are really weird people. <laughs> Not easy to love. They're real needy. And what those are, those are opportunities to create even more glory for God. Because where in the world do those people receive love? Where in the world do you love people who you don't feel loved by? Where are the unlovable? And so when people come into this room, they should be able to look around and they should be able to see all kinds of people from all walks of life with all kinds of problems and glory at the fact that everyone here has a place and that everyone is loved. Loving the lovable it's hard enough, right? I mean, but, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to love people who give us stuff. We love people who make us feel joy. We love people who make us laugh. We love people who we think are like us. And they're the easy relationships. And we say, that's, that's love. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just try to love this certain quadrant of people over here because it's much easier, and someone else, I'm sure, will be equipped to love those people over there. But that's not how God is glorified. God is glorified when we move towards those who are not like us. Authentic love means loving those who don't love you. I had a black belt in not loving people that I didn't want to love. As a non-Christian, I remember having really clear conversations with people. You know, there were people that I found strange or uh, uninteresting or that wanted to be my friends. And I would say, look, it's nothing personal. I just don't like you. <laughs> what could be more personal than I just don't like you? <laughs> and I thought I was, you know, being kind or, or just, you know, the, the truth is the, what you do. You know, I don't want to do what most people do and just pretend to be your friend and then lie to you. And I don't want to talk about you behind your back and then you find out from someone else. I'll just tell you what I think and then you can go away. And that's love. So God, <laughs> I'm so grateful God came into my life. Because I remember bringing that attitude into my Christian life. You ever, you ever made this argument? Isn't it disingenuous to love someone you don't like? Oh, yeah. That feels good to say that. Let's think about that for a second. I can't love. I can't pretend to love someone that I don't like. That would be fake. That would be hypocrisy. Our love is supposed to be without hypocrisy. It's very biblical for me to hate people that I don't like. 
And I remember being challenged as a young believer. Someone came into my life and they said, what are you doing? And I said, I love these people over here. They're cool. I like them. They're easy. Those people, God's got other people. The body has many parts and some other part is for them. <laughs> and he said, you know, when, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord. And he said, then shepherd by sheep. Even a thief loves those who love him, Jesus says. That we are all fearfully and wonderfully made. There is something amazing about each and every one of us and that we are called by God to be known by our love of the unlovable. And that is how God is glorified among us. Is it disingenuous to love someone you don't like? No, it's supernatural. It's something that only happens in the church, the true church of the followers of Jesus Christ. Where you can really, where you can say, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel like loving this person, but I choose to love them. That is more genuine. That is more real. That's real love when you say, I choose love. My entire body is desiring to run away, but I choose love. That's the power of God. And that is more real than what's easy. That's just an excuse to only love the easy people. Love beyond human capacity. That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul is pointing and shining his light on. The church is supposed to be about so lo such a love, such a great love, that when the world looks at the community of God's followers, they are convinced of the existence of God, the true God of the Bible, the God of love. He sums up this whole section here in 1221. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're not supposed to be passively withstanding the evil and tyranny of this world. We're not supposed to be bunkered in, just waiting for Jesus to come back so that he can set everything right. We are supposed to be going out. We are the aggressors in this battle of ideas where we go out into the world and we bring love where there is hate and we bring good where there is evil and we bring light where there is darkness. Don't let the world snuff out your light. But realize that you have an incredible opportunity to stand out in contrast. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5, 14. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the picture. Imagine for a moment if that were we went, if we lived in a culture where we went out into the world and we said, what do you think of when you think of a Christian? And they're like, they are a bright light. I don't know if I agree with them, but I can't deny that they love everyone. They're authentic. The Christians that I've met are sinful people, and they'll be the first ones to tell you that. And they serve. They're always the first ones to volunteer to serve when there's a need, and 
I've suffered in my life, and they've asked if they could pray for me. I told them I didn't believe in God, and they said, that's okay. Their prayers would still work. And I don't know if I can accept the Bible, and I don't know if I'm ready to give my life to God, but I do know one thing. Those people have something that I don't. Imagine. Imagine if that was what it, was, what it meant to be a Christian. If love were the predominant value. It is our most powerful weapon. It's what's supposed to define us. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you know what we can't do? We can't go out and change the whole world's perception about what it means to be a Christian. We can't. But you know what we can do? We can change the perception of the people in our lives that we're in contact with. There are 200 home churches in this city. 200 home churches. Over 5,000 people in this church. And what if all of us just went out determined that the people in my life are going to know that God is about love and they're going to see God's love in me? That wouldn't change the news media. It wouldn't change the way the whole world saw what it meant to be a follower of Christ. But it would change eternity. Lives would be impacted in incredible ways. Imagine how people's lives would change. Imagine how the people in your office, how their lives would change if they could see real love, if they had access to it. And that's the question. That's the challenge for us. Which of us will dare to live it? Who will get up off the couch who will initiate, who will give, who will serve, who will be diligent, who will be honest, who will be authentic, who will abhor evil. And in all of our foibles, in all of our faults, in all of the ways that we will screw that up, be determined not to quit when it comes to sharing and expressing the love of God. That's what we've got from Romans 12. God, we, uh, we know that there's a lot of opportunity here, that we have something here um, in this room, uh, in this fellowship, that's not perfect, that makes mistakes, that um, the, the sinful heart of man is, is, is manifest here, but that you are here as well where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in our midst. That your word is here, that your spirit is here, and that um, you could be manifest in Columbus, Ohio in a way that's, that's very powerful and that you are. And we just ask God that you would show us how we can be ambassadors for you, how we can bring authentic love to our children, to our spouses, but... Um, into the dark places, God. We know that there are people in our lives that have the wrong idea about who you are and the wrong idea about what you want. And we pray that we could find ways that you will open up doors and create ways, God, 
for us to show them your genuine love. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.